You have heard of Job's perseverance. That's what James wrote in the New Testament. We read it earlier. James believed one of the major lessons we can learn from Job is how to persevere. But as you and I read the book of Job, the kind of perseverance we find may not be what we expected to find. I don't think we would describe Job as docile. He doesn't take his suffering lying down. He shouts about it. And a fair bit of Job's shouting is directed at God. He gets pretty worked up about what God lets him go through. He's not happy about it. And yet James commends Job to believers. You have heard of Job's perseverance. The implication is, this man is an example to us. And that tells us biblical perseverance does not necessarily mean being serene and unflappable. If it did, Job would not be one of the Bible's poster boys. He would not be held up as an example to us. Job's perseverance was accompanied by plenty of flapping and not much serenity at all. And yet James points us to him. You, have, you want to learn about perseverance? And pay attention to Job. So this morning we're going to ask, what was it about Job that so impressed James? What does it mean to have faith in the midst of darkness? We're going to turn to Job chapter 19. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 522. And in the large print Bibles, page 806. And if you were here last week, you will realize we are skipping over nine chapters in the book. So let me briefly tell you what we're skipping over. We ended last time with Job sharing his impossible hope. He longed for someone to mediate between him and God. That's how the NIV translates it. We could also use the word umpire or arbiter. Whatever word we use, the point is, from Job's perspective, God seems aloof and distant. And Job longs for someone who will bring God and man together. Literally, someone to place his hand on both of us. But even as Job longed for that, he saw no way it would happen. He was speaking as a man who is just reaching out in the darkness. He's stretching for something he could barely imagine. And he very quickly slides back to despair. We find that if we were to read chapter 10. So then in chapter 11, the last of Job's three friends weighs in. His name is Zophar, and he has nothing new to say. He repeats what we've heard from the other two friends. They all believe, as we saw last time, God runs the world like a bubblegum machine. Put some good behavior into the system, and some blessing will pop out of the machine for you. Put some evil into the system 
and evil will descend on your life. That's what Zophar believes. And so his challenge to Job is, look at the evil that has descended on your life, Job. And then figure out the evil you need to repent of. Turn from your sin and God will take away your trouble. Well, Job has heard all that before. And he gives a pretty sarcastic response in chapter 12. Doubtless you are the only people who matter and wisdom will die with you. But by now all three of the friends have had a go at setting Job straight. We might think they'd give up. But no, they start a second round of speeches. Eliphaz pipes up again. And Job continues to be unimpressed. In chapter 16 he says, You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? But then Job returns very briefly to the idea of chapter 9. He says, even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. The idea of help from heaven has not only stayed with Job, it has become a little firmer. In chapter 9 he said, if only there were someone to mediate between us. In chapter 16 he says, my advocate is on high. But again, that moment of insight fades for Job. And in chapter 18, Bildad chimes in and he says, Job, pal, I hate to tell you, but you're on your way to hell. You are suffering terribly here and now. That obviously means you are a terrible sinner. And unless you see sense and repent, you are going to a place of terror and burning sulfur. You're going to the place where people who don't know God go. What does Job have to say about that? Well, let's listen to his reply in chapter 19. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me? And crush me with words. Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry, violence! I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me as a foreigner. They look upon me as a stranger. I summon my servant. 
but he does not answer. Though I beg him with my own mouth, my breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say how we will hound him since the root of the trouble lies in him. You should fear the sword yourselves. For wrath will bring punishment by the sword. And then you will know that there is judgment. This is God's word. So we've looked at the earlier chapters of this book. We have seen Job is living in deep darkness. His health is broken. His bank account is empty. His children are all dead. And his friends are convinced Job deserves it all. But in Job's darkness, we have seen several moments of light. First, the faint hope of a mediator, and then a firmer hope. There is heavenly help for me. And in the chapters we passed over, in among Job's anger and frustration, there was another moment of light. In chapter 13, Job said this about God. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Now at the time, Job didn't develop those words. He didn't really explain what he meant. But the chapter we just read is a detailed explanation of that statement in, verse thir- in chapter 13. In verses 1 to 22 of our chapter, Job explains what he meant by, though he slay me. Then in verses 23 to 29, Job explains what he meant by, yet I will hope in him. So first, Job says, though he slay me. And Job certainly feels God is slaying him. In verses 1 to 12, he says, it seems to be God who has me under siege. I've used the word seems because Job is describing how things appear to him. This is how it all looks from Job's perspective. His friends tell him God is against him. They tell him Job's suffering proves God is angry with him. And Job says, I can't deny my suffering. 
But you are wrong to say it's deserved suffering. I'm not hiding sin in my heart. My conscience is clear. And so, Job says in verse 6, God has wronged me. A better translation might be, God has put me in the wrong. In other words, he is treating me as if I'm in the wrong. He's treating me like he treats his enemies. And then Job goes on to describe what that feels like. He pictures himself as a king in his city. And he pictures God like an army commander come to do violence to Job. Look again at verse 7. Though I cry, violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. When we first met Job, he was described as the greatest man among all the people of the East. Job was like a king with his wealth and his status. But not anymore. The wealth and the honor have gone. And as far as Job can see, God just keeps on coming to take even more. Verse 10, He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. Notice how that very last word upends the whole picture. God appears to be coming at Job with enough force to flatten a city. But Job says, it's excessive. I'm not like a city at all. I'm more like a little guy in a tent. I unzip the front flap one morning and find the Almighty and his armies pointing their missiles at me. Job is saying, this is divine overkill. He goes on. It seems to be God who has isolated me. Verse 13. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look upon me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer. Do I beg him with my own mouth? My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I'm nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Job feels utterly alone. It seems God is not content to attack Job himself. He has also cut Job off from human fellowship. In verse 17, Job says, My breath is offensive to my wife. That probably means more than she wishes I'd use more mouthwash. In the Old Testament, the word translated breath here can also be translated spirit. Depends on the context. 
So for example, when Genesis chapter 1 says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, the word spirit is the same word used here. And so Job is almost certainly saying, my whole being is offensive to my wife. Of all human companions, my spouse is supposed to be my soulmate. But I sicken her. And mouthwash is not going to fix it. She loathes me. Job's suffering goes way deeper than his broken body. He feels utterly, utterly alone. As far as he can see, God has put him top of his heavenly hit list. And there's not one human soul who cares for him. And so in verse 21, Job turns to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar and says, Have pity on me, my friends, have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? It's hard to think of a more pathetic picture. A broken man on his knees pleading for pity. And we know what the worst part is for Job. He believes God sees him as an enemy. Job can see no other way to interpret his suffering. God is all-powerful. My life has been torn down. Therefore, it is the hand of God that has struck me. That's how Job interprets the situation. But has he got it right? Does God's anger burn against Job? No. Does God view Job as an enemy? No. You and I have heard the conversations in heaven and we know God is not angry with Job. He does not see Job as an enemy. Yes, there is a battle going on. We know that too. But God is not fighting Job. God does have an enemy, but it's not Job. Job's suffering and the suffering of all God's people is part of a cosmic battle. The outcome of that battle is not in doubt. Satan will be defeated, along with all the powers of darkness. But on the way to victory, God's faithful people still get real wounds. Job thinks that God has dished out his wounds. But whose hand really struck Job? If we look back at chapters 1 and 2, we would find that the hand belonged to Satan. The permission was God's, but the hand was Satan's. That might seem to you and me like a very fine distinction, but why is it important? It's important because you and I must not oversimplify our situation. Last week we saw the friends had an overly simple view of God's justice. The bubblegum machine. You get out what you put in all the time. And here 
It's important not to oversimplify our understanding of God's sovereignty. Yes, he is in control. He is Lord of all. But we mustn't draw a straight line from God's sovereignty to our suffering. That's what Job is doing. He has not reckoned with the fact that God has an enemy and that there's a battle going on. We know that Job's wounds have come because he is precious to God. Not because God is against him. We know that Job's wounds have a part to play in God's victory over Satan. Job knows none of that. He's in the dark about Satan's involvement. But you and I can see more than Job can. And so in our own situation, when our daily lives are committed to God, when we have a clear conscience before God like Job, then when suffering strikes our lives, it does not mean God is striking us. We do have an enemy, but it's not God. And so we can't draw a straight line from God's sovereignty to our suffering and conclude God is striking us. The hand that strikes us belongs to Satan. He's the one who wants to slay us. Job has not considered Satan. He's in the dark about Satan's involvement. And that makes the rest of chapter 19 all the more remarkable. Job says of God, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Job began the chapter by mentioning the words of his friends. Their words pronounce a verdict on Job. Their verdict is guilty. But Job knows they're wrong. And so he wants his own words to be recorded. Verse 23. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or engraved in rock forever. Job knows he has come to God the way God commanded. He has come by the means of atonement God provided. Job's sin has been dealt with by sacrifice. We saw that in chapter 1. He stands blameless before God. But will he be proved blameless? That's the question. Well, first he imagines his own words being written on a scroll. Or even better, if they could be engraved in rock. That would be more solid, more lasting. But then, as we've seen him do before, Job reaches out for something greater than that. We saw him in chapter 9 longing for a mediator. In chapter 16, longing for an advocate on high and even believing it was there. But now Job's faith reaches a new level of clarity. Verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. This is a famous statement from Job. 
But what exactly is he saying? Well, this word redeemer is a very significant word in the Bible. It refers, when it initially occurs, to someone's next of kin, your closest relative who would help you when you were in trouble. One writer says the Redeemer would stand for you when you could not stand for yourself. The Bible gives lots of examples of how that would work out in daily life. The most detailed example is found in the book of Ruth. The book centers on two ladies who are in desperate need. Naomi is an elderly widow and Ruth is her daughter-in-law, also a widow. Those two ladies find themselves in dire straits. They have no protection and they have no way to support themselves. But into that desperate situation comes a redeemer. His name is Boaz and he takes responsibility for Naomi and Ruth. He stands for them when they couldn't stand for themselves. And here in Job 19, in his desperate situation, Job looks to a day when a Redeemer will stand for him. Who or what is Job thinking of? Well, this is building on what Job has said before. He longed for a mediator to stand between earth and heaven. He believes he is an advocate in heaven. So this Redeemer is not one of Job's earthly relatives. He's just told us at great length his earthly relatives have all forsaken him. There's no Redeemer there. Job is looking to a heaven-sent Redeemer. Even as he feels attacked by heaven, Job somehow is confident of help from heaven. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth, literally on the dust. And standing, as Job uses it here, is equivalent to taking the stand. It's a word from the law court. Remember, the word or the verdict of Job's friends is that he's guilty. God is against him. Job looks to his Redeemer to take the stand and declare him not guilty. That's the help Job longs for. And he has faith it will be provided. When does Job expect his Redeemer to take the stand? Well, verse 26 is quite difficult to translate. You can see that from the amount of footnotes in the NIV. What is clear in verse 26 is that Job expects to see God and to see him after death, after my skin has been destroyed. The bit that's unclear in verse 26 is whether Job expects to have a resurrected body when he sees God. Is he saying, in my flesh I will see God or apart from my flesh I will see God? The Hebrew could be translated either way. But whatever Job is expecting for his own body, the key point in verse 26 is this. He has no doubt his Redeemer will succeed in standing for him. 
In verse 27, speaking about God, Job says, I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Back in chapter 9, Job wondered about the point of meeting God. He felt God would just blow him away. But now, with faith in his Redeemer, Job has confidence about meeting God. Now he yearns to see God. Why? Because he knows he'll be accepted. The Redeemer will stand for him. And God's verdict will be not guilty. How would this Redeemer do his work? Job doesn't say. He probably didn't grasp the details of his redemption. What he has is faith it's going to happen. But as you and I read this book, we begin to realize Job himself is a picture of God's Redeemer. Think back to the first part of this chapter. Job reckoned himself to be struck by God. And human friends have deserted Job. He has been stripped of his honor. The crown has been removed from his head. His body is broken. He is loathsome to those who see him. Later in the Old Testament, Isaiah prophesied that God's Redeemer would have the same experience. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised And we esteemed him not. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But Isaiah goes on to say, the suffering of this Redeemer was not pointless. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The New Testament tells us our Redeemer is Jesus Christ. He was perfectly blameless. He was dearly loved by his Father. Yet he suffered like an enemy of God. He did it so we could one day meet God accepted and unashamed, declared to be not guilty so that we could be perfectly satisfied in God's presence. Job 19 contains clear hope for the future. It's even clearer now that Jesus has come. But the chapter ends, you'll notice, with a warning. Job's friends think that their standing with God is all up to them. They don't believe they need a Redeemer. They can stand for themselves, thanks. That's the point of the quotation from the friends or the 
words that Job attributes to the friends in verse 28. They're talking about Job when they say, the root of the trouble lies in him. In other words, we all get what we've earned. And we are doing well in life. So we must deserve to do well. Job's life is full of pain, so he must deserve pain. The friends believe we always get what we deserve. And so they have no room for God's grace. They have no room for a blameless one who would suffer so they could be healed. They believe they can stand for themselves. And so they receive a warning in verse 29. You should fear the sword yourselves. For wrath will bring punishment by the sword. And then you will know that there is judgment. As you listen to this, maybe at this point in time your life is going well. And you believe you deserve it. You interpret your prosperity as a sign heaven is pleased with you. But that was the friend's mistake. Prosperity now does not mean judgment day will go well for you. You need the redeemer heaven has provided. Without him, you will not be able to stand on Judgment Day. And those of us who are trusting in Jesus, how are we going to persevere? How are we going to keep going when life gets dark for us? We have to look to our Redeemer every day. Looking at Jesus reminds us our Redeemer lives and he stands for us. Yes, we are in a battle. There are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's the enemy. The enemy's desire is to slay us as God's people. And he may be allowed to wound us. If he is, God has some purpose in it. It has some part to play in God's victory over the enemy. That was true of Job's wounds. It was true of Jesus' wounds. It's true of ours as well. But let's remember, the enemy's defeat has already been sealed at the cross. And when the war is finally over, we will see God and we will be satisfied. So in the meantime, let's keep our eyes on our Redeemer. That's how we'll persevere. And let's give thanks to him now.